Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner 3 days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring tales to terrify and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome. Hello and welcome to show 439. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Tell you what's coming in today's show. We have an interview with Brooke Burrell. Now, Brooke wrote this article over on Popular Science, which is the tricky, and I love it as well, the tricky ethics of living longer. Yeah, so we're going to be talking to Brooke about that. Just, there is some complications, you know what I mean? There is some things to think about, you know, if you're trying to live a longer life, you know what I mean? There's there's implications. Then the main fiction is Underwater Restoration by Jeffrey A. Ballard. That is all coming in today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. So yes, hopefully, you know, pretty soon there, things, just before we get into the kind of the things, pretty soon we'll be getting into moving over and getting some adverts put on the kind of show. And just for, if you're interested, Your Remarkable Adventure has, you know, done that and we've got some, and it's just a little kind of show, but I just wanted to make sure everything was all right and... You know, it automatically puts an advert at the, the the beginning of the show and the end of the show as well. It's clever stuff, to be quite honest. So that is probably the way we are going down, you know, Starship Sofas we and all the other District of Wonders. Just to, you know, give you a glimpse, the it, people, you know, drop out of kind of the, the subscriptions. It happens, you know, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. <laughs> it happens. And just, you know, I mentioned it last week, if within the month... I'm betting something like 150 UK, UK, Great British Pound, you know, has, has dropped off the kind of the funding. And it's, 
this happens on, that's why, you know, this is a constant kind of battle to keep things going. So this is, you know, if anyone's thinking, well, you know, adverts and all that, you know, it's got to come in from different aspects, different areas, you know, like drip feed into the kind of one, you know, the hub to keep all going there. So that's the reason why, if you want to, you know, thank you for, since I kind of mentioned this last week, there's been a few kind of pop up, popped over to Patreon or just, you know, the usual way to support. Well, thank you so much. Keep them coming in as well. Do you know what I mean? That would be fantastic. Enough of the business stuff there. Let's move on. There's some great stuff, man. The Tricky Ethics of Living Longer by Brooke Burrell. Like I say, I interviewed Brooke a while ago there now. And, you know, that article just brought up some fascinating, you know, possibilities and dilemmas. Today I'm talking to Brooke Burrell. Now, over on Popular Science, Brooke wrote this article, The Tricky Ethics of Living Longer. And we're all in this kind of technical age there where we just want immortality, we want kind of tech to keep we going and going and going. But there's some ethical issues there, you know. You, your kids want to kind of move up the line and you're there hanging on, you know what I mean, with your, all your medical advances. You're taking up space and room and you're costing some money. And when you think in the animal kingdom, you know, the, the, there was a tortoise that Brooke wrote about as well that lived to a 225 years. You're hanging around that long, man. Do you think ever there's a chance we'll get to that kind of ripe old age? You know, I'm not sure. The, the researchers that I interviewed, so this piece was sort of spawned by this large package feature that I wrote for Popular Science on the science of longevity and aging and where we are with that kind of research. And most of the researchers I spoke with were more conservative in how long they think the human body can live. Um, it was maybe more like 120 or something like that. But there are researchers out there that throw out numbers like a thousand years old and this sort of stuff. I, I don't think we're quite there yet or we're definitely not there yet. But I guess the answer is maybe we just don't really know yet. You know, I, I would take 120. Do you know what I mean? I'd be quite happy at that. Um, thousand, yeah. <laughs> if we keep, because I was thinking, you know, if we keep finding cures for the diseases, is that a way, the way we will achieve the kind of longevity? You know, knocking on, knocking the diseases on the head. Yeah, that's how it's happened in the past, although we're talking about different types of diseases. Uh, just collectively worldwide, we have, you know, to a degree extended life expectancy uh, with varying, uh, you know, degrees depending on where you live and a lot of other factors. Uh, but we have done that through improving hygiene, for example, and then also, as you mentioned, uh, combating disease, in that case, infectious diseases. So, discovering antibiotics and developing vaccines and that sort of thing. Now, most of the, I mean, those things are still important, but now uh, when people do live uh, longer, most of the diseases that they perhaps will die from are more age-related, things like cancer or maybe Alzheimer's or these sorts of things. And right now, the approach in the medical world is to treat each of those individually. You get cancer, you try and get treatment for that. Maybe then that helps you live longer, but then you get Alzheimer's and so forth. And the scientists that I spoke to for that original piece that I wrote, uh, they're they're thinking of it in a little bit of a different way. Age seems to be one of or is one of the largest risk factors for a lot of those diseases. So why not try and figure out how we age 
at the molecular level and figure out a way to not make us live forever, but sort of postpone uh, or, or treat that aging process directly uh, and then sort of prevent or at least hold off those age-related diseases. You, you made a great point, though, and I, I, this is all kind of, you know, kind of drew us to the article, Brooke. Is that what you said? You know, some of these kind of ethical issues, you know, it, these treatments, you know, to try and live longer will no doubt cost a lot of money. Do you know what I mean? So then you've got this kind of thing where is it only the rich is going to survive, you know, and live longer? Yeah. And I mean, whether these some of the treatments that are under research right now might be relatively cheap. There are some researchers looking at these drugs that we already use for other purposes. Um, one's called metformin and another one's rapamycin. And there, there are others, but those, I think, are the, the main ones that we already use for other things. Now, I'm not saying people should run out and use those drugs to try and live longer because that is not it is not at that stage. We do not know that. Those are some things scientists are looking into. So some of them might be affordable, but then, so, but even if if they aren't affordable, then, then yes, it could be that there are issues of access when it comes to cost. Um, but even if they're relatively affordable, depending on who you are and how much uh, resources you have, you still might not be able to afford them. Uh, it might be more of a luxury item. Uh, and then there's also other issues of access. Uh, maybe it's not even only financial, but maybe there are situations where there are inequalities in medical care already that could be tied to all kinds of other reasons. So will doctors always be advising patients to go after these treatments or not? Uh, will people be educated in what these treatments can do and with the risks involved? Uh, you know, the medical community obviously thinks about these things a lot in other areas, but it's something I think that's worth bringing up. One point I noticed as well you made was, you know, you said if we want to kind of live longer as well, it's maybe to work longer as well. Oh, no, surely no, we can't <laughs> keep on doing that. Right. Well, some people, I mean, some people do want to do enjoy work and want to work longer, but some people might need to work longer. If, if we're living longer and you know, need to support ourselves for longer. And on one hand, maybe people, the, the idea here isn't necessarily to make people live longer. It's to make people healthier longer. Um, so it's increasing what's called the health span instead of the lifespan. But when you do that, you probably also extend that the lifespan. So yes. So it, ideally it makes it so people are healthier longer, but then, yeah, you probably do have to work longer, maybe partly because you just feel healthy enough to do that and you want to do it depending on what your work is but there might be some necessity for that too there might not you might have to continue to make money to support living longer because you know you might not have the retirement funding or the social security or whatever system there is um in your country to help you sustain that longer life financially i mean when you think we're seeing it really now putting a strain on the economy you know what i mean even like over here in the uk the kind of retirement data you know, they keep on getting pushed back a year. Do you know what I mean? And like another year, it's kind of, I think now it's it's 67 possibly for men over here. And it's just, it looks like it's always going to be kind of, you know, jumping ahead of you. Yeah. And there are different points of view on, on how that will work. Uh, there was one group of economists uh, out in California. The name of the school is escaping me right now, but they... They predicted a large or very large amount of savings if people could work longer because those people wouldn't need to go on Social Security or whatever and uh, be supported in that way. And they could continue to contribute to the economy. But, yeah, you do have if 
potentially, if you have people remaining in the workforce, you might not have job openings for new people entering the workforce. It's very complicated, though. I think it very much depends on the sector you're talking about and the types of jobs and that sort of thing. But it's a dynamic and interesting question. You threw up as well another great kind of ethical issue there. Where, you know, if we all live in longer and everything like that, and it comes down to your, your inheritance, you know, and your kids are wanting your kind of inheritance and wanting, you know, but your, you know, granddad or dad's living longer and longer. You know, you're not kind of popping off your clogs kind of thing. Yeah, it's kind of, it gets complicated. I mean, of course, I think that also brings up maybe some difficult like feelings that might uh, be within someone. Obviously, you don't necessarily want granddad to die, or maybe you do. I don't know. But it, there is that issue of passing on, uh, you know, land or homes for for families that do have those things to begin with. Uh, that it could take longer to pass that on to the next generation. So maybe they would have to um, start out on their own and, and build more on their own to begin with. A lot of people have to do that anyway, of course. So it, it will be different depending on who you are and what situation you're in. You know, you, you mentioned, you know, 120s kind of, you know, it, it's not really, you know, it might be in our grasp. And I, I guess we're not going to go there in one jump. You know, it's going to be a kind of gradual process to get to this, you know, this mankind, humanity up to 120. How gradual do you think that will be? Oh, I think it's, I certainly couldn't make a guess. I'm not sure. Um, I'm a journalist, not a scientist, you know, but I think that, I mean, it's been relative, it's been gradual in the past too. I mean, if you look at the the data, it's quite striking how much we've increased average life expectancies um, but it's not like it happened overnight. So I, I did think one of the points in the article that came actually for one of the people that I interviewed, a bioethicist, was that we've dealt with this before and, you know, gradually people living longer and gradually that changing society and how we how we deal with that. I think it, it, it's very well possible that that will be our future as well. It'll happen sort of more gradually and we'll just sort of organically figure out how to deal with it as it happens. You know, when you were kind of, you're talking to the scientists and kind of, put, you know, mentioning, did you, did you mention by any chance about like the word immortality? You know, is it, is that just totally kind of put to one side and left for science fiction? Or is there some scientists thinking, do you know, if the right genes and everything were crossed and sliced and spliced, there might be a chance? I think there are some people that are looking towards that. And one area of that, I mean, this is a different kind of immortality, but some people, of course, look to the future of our, of the singularity and our merging with machines. And will we ever be able to upload our brains into the, some cloud? Uh, and that's maybe far-fetched. Some people are certainly interested in that. Um, that brings on a whole other list of ethical issues. I mean, do people want to be uploaded? What would that be like? Would that... Uh, be difficult to not have mobility and just have your mind floating, you know, in space somewhere. Uh, how, yeah, could you be man- manipulated in some ways that you wouldn't want to be manipulated? But that that's one area where people are talking about a type of immortality. We certainly don't have the technology to do that yet. Um, but as far as keeping human beings alive in their bodies indefinitely, that I'm, I'm sure there are some people out there that would like to do that, but that I think for now is in the realm of science fiction. And I'm, I'm um, guessing as well, the, the, there must be societies and cultures out there, you know, even now that I kind of do want this, you know, this aging process to, to get longer and longer, you know? 
Yeah. I mean, they're all kind of, you know, death is, and death is a part of life. And that's something that I think a lot, depending on what culture you're part of, that's, it's, you know, an intrinsic thing that happens to us and tinkering with these things are perhaps you know, not, <laughs> not in the realm of humans to be doing, although we do it anyway. So, yeah. Is it still, is it, Brooke, then, still the trend that women actually do live longer, you know, even with the kind of technology and we're kind of knocking some diseases on the head? Are, are you still ahead of us on that score? Yeah, that's my understanding. Again, the things that are even more strikingly tied to life expectancy, I, I think, are uh, wealth and education. There, even there's a map that we actually published in Popular Science, and it's of the U.S., but I imagine there might be similar data in other countries. And it shows, I mean, if, it shows the life expectancy by zip code, basically. And sometimes people, you could actually guess someone's life expectancy depending on where they live. And of course, that's also tied to um, wealth and poverty and access to medical care and education, all of those things. Um, but but there is there is also the trend that women do tend to live longer than men, but it's, it's more complicated than that. There are a lot of other factors uh, that go into that as well. I noticed you said this kind of on on the links, you know, there was a, the, a whole load of like articles there for us to kind of read. And one of them was about your, your pets as well. And the, the possibility where technology now is going to, the chance to make even your pets live longer, you know, because they like, say we've got, you know, we're a kind of dog family and it's just so short a span of life, you know, the, the kind of all your emotions and your love for these pets and they're gone yeah. in, the, in a really in a blink of an eye. Yeah, my husband actually, what my husband's uncle likes to say, he's, he, whenever anyone gets a dog, he says something like, oh, so you want to be really sad in about 10 years. <laughs> uh, oh, that's brutal. Oh, you know? um, but yeah, that actual, that article was uh, not one that I wrote. Um, it's one that another contributor to Popular Science wrote, but he was, his name's Adam Pure, and he was writing about uh, a drug called rapamycin. And that is one of the drugs that scientists are interested in. Uh, for extending life or a health span, really. And the the trial that's under ongoing for that drug right now, they're doing that in dogs. And there could be, I mean, if it ends up working, there could be some commercial, you know, application for that. Everyone would love their dogs to live longer, I think. So, yes, it's happening in that realm as well. Oh, fantastic. I guess, though, you know, final question, Brooke, though, but in the end, I'm guessing this whole living longer, you know, has really got to do with technology, and not just, you know, the human species evolving on its own. Right. I, well, we, yeah, it's interesting to think about those questions. I mean, we have been contributing uh, our own ingenuity and, you know, technical skills to making us live longer. I mean, that's what happened with infectious diseases, right? We discovered antibiotics, we figured out vaccines, we figured out all of these other things to make us live longer. So we are certainly um, taking an active role in... <laughs> And, and not just leaving everything to sort of chance and evolution and nature. Brooke, it's been lovely. Your, your article was just fascinating to kind of make you, you know, just to, to make you dream and wonder, you know, like the, the what if. And that's great, even, you know, our show is science fiction. That whole what if scenario is just fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Was that okay, Brooke? Yeah, that's fine. I'm I'm totally fine with that. Um, I guess my only question is how 
you'll introduce me. And if I can hear that and make sure that that's right. well, if you want to just send over a little bio, if you've got anything, I'll just kind of, you know, read from that if you want. You know what I mean? If you've yeah. got a, like a yeah. bio and a kind of little few links we can put on to you, anything like that, that would be yeah, fantastic. That'd be, that'd be great. I'll send you an email after we, we get off the Skype. Marvellous. Brooke, honestly, it's been lovely. It's really nice. Thank you so much. Hold on. Thank you. Take good care. All right. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. There you go. I'll put Brooke's website on and you can go over to Twitter as well. And Brooke was also telling, you know, nothing related, but she's wrote this book as well, Infested Book. Bed bugs, you know. What, what? Yes, I know. It's just, I'm scratching my back of my neck there now. All the kind of interesting facts about, you know, the kind of the bugs we live at, live with in our bed. It's, oh, scary stuff. Just pop over to, that, to our, our, like our book website, you know, Infested, and it's it, it does, you know, it, <laughs> you don't realise what you're sleeping with, man. Brooke, thank you so much for a great interview. Lovely. So next up is the main fixture, and it is Underwater Restoration by Jeffrey A. Ballard. Originally published in Austin Scott's Card Intergalactic Medicine Show, Jeffrey A. Ballard is a nomadic Yankee that currently lives in the Texas Hill Country. A long-time fascination with the ocean led him to academia, where he happily spends his days playing scientist and spends his nights and early mornings writing about the science he wished existed. His science fiction has appeared, like I say, in... Orson Scott Card's Intergalactic Medicine Show, Plasma Frequency and Fiction River Time Streams to date. The full-length Underwater Restorations novel of Isa and the Gang debuts in October 2016. And like you say, there's a link on that Jeffrey's site if you want to pop over there. Story is narrated by Setsu Uzme. Setsu spends her four years in and outdoors of dojos. She's trained in a monastery in rural China, studying Taoism and swordplay. She is a member of the Codex and Science Fiction Writers of America. While she has dabbled in many arts, only writing and martial arts seems to have stuck. You can find her on. Link there as well if you want to go over there to say hello to Setsu's. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Underwater Restorations by Jeffrey A. Ballard. This is my favorite part, 30 feet above the ocean, falling at 190 miles an hour, close enough to see our reflections hurtling to meet us. It's the second just before the agitator lasers ahead to break the surface tension that's the sweetest, when all the adrenaline of a 10,000-foot freefall culminates in a terrifying second of, oh, shit. A hundred things could go wrong. The agitator may not move enough water out of the way. The air pocket could collapse before entry. The subroutine that mixes water and air for the controlled deceleration may miscalculate and flatten me into a shark pancake. Almost a hundred different ways to die in under a tenth of a second. I love it. Then it passes, and we're down fifty feet underwater and descending. Only when the static of the comm comes online through my earpiece, trying to make a connection... Do I remember to breathe? The rush of the entry fades into focus on the job at hand. Another fifty feet later, we stand on an exit ramp from I-95 and the rookie, Wynn, 
brings up the hollow map with incomplete sonar data overlaid. Hurricane Gretchen passed through last night and did us the favor of muddying up the waters, an expected development. The feds are just as blind. Lovers, you're all clear. I can hear the smirk in Poe's voice, 10,000 feet above in the seagull and driving north on the South Florida Memorial Airway. We descended four miles too far to the east, Wynne points at the blinking dot on the hollow map. I think we'll need to jet flow. Listen, about last night. The flow jets will make too much noise. The squiddies are tuned to it. Its only purpose is to outrun the damn things. No, we'll have to jump, skip, and hop to the site. It's quieter and doesn't disturb the water as much. Adjust your buoyancy and rhythm to your jumps and try to keep up. I initiate my jump subroutine and leap. Poe. That nosy punk's always got to stir the pot. I land forty feet away at an intersection and wait. Let wind struggle. I'll send over the subroutine after he falls several times. It's just a fling. My father always said we schmitz think with our cocks. Well, in my case, insert the female equivalent. Wynne is just standing there. Rookie, what's taking you so long? Let's move. I'm writing a subroutine to automatically manage the buoyancy adjustments. I can transmit it to you when I'm done. That's very kind of you, Rookie, Poe breaks in. Don't you think that's nice, Issa? Poe, he is so going to pay for this. Focus on our pickup. Rookie, nice thought. Here you go. I don't have time to wait for you to flounder through it. I transmit the subroutine. Soon enough, he's leaping as well. I keep one leap ahead of him as we make our way to the destination. What's left of the urban sprawl of South Florida passes by in blue-green shadows. Most of the buildings are intact, some are collapsed, but all of them are still. They seem to defy the churning of the water from the hurricane that passed through. With less than a mile to go, alarms start going off. Squiddies, the autonomous eyes and ears of the federal government below the waves. I cancel the subroutine and look for a place to hide. There's a Chick-fil-A thirty feet away. I glide through a broken window and hug up against the ceiling in the play area. Hopefully, Wynne's done something similar. What are the Squiddies doing this far west and north? There's nothing out here they should care about. The juiciest loot is in Miami along the Old Coast. South Florida isn't even on the top ten of the most federally protected underwater sites. I move smoothly between the top of the slide and the roof, trying not to stir any silt. The more obstacles between me and the Squiddies, the better chance their sonar can't find me, particularly after a hurricane. A tense half hour later, Poe says over the calm, It's gone. It's two miles south and continuing to move in that direction. It was supposed to be clear, I say. They changed the modulation on the carrier frequency. His voice is agitated. I got it now. There's definitely a swarm of them further north than normal, but they're hanging out by the old coast. The president must be looking for some electoral year victories or something. Catching grave robbers of the sunken site is definitely a low-risk, high-profile political victory. Too bad we don't have enough credibility to tell the masses the feds do the same thing. The real reason they police it outside of public opinion is to protect their claim. Rookie, check in. I'm here, one block over in a half-collapsed gas station. I wasn't sure whether to break calm. Hurry up and meet me at the site. A school of mackerel hover around an old land car, an Audi, and duck inside as I approach. Too bad Audi couldn't use that in their marketing campaign. 
Over a hundred air miles to the gallon now, and an artificial reef and home to thousands for Mother Earth later. It'd get the dry earth humpers off their backs. The mansion looks like every other one on the block. Spanish tile roof, arched entries, horseshoe driveway, and covered in algae and buds of coral. After 86 years, the wood backing the eight-foot wrought iron door is rotted and feeble. It's no match for my kung fu fist. The entryway is actually kind of tasteful, notable only in the absence of the ostentatiousness of the rich trying to live like the wealthy. No statue or fountain, no pointless two-curved stairway or cheesy hand-carved table with an oversized vase. The marble floors open to a main living area that looks out on the back through a wall of broken windows. Not long after, Wynn shows up, and I lead him wordlessly upstairs and down a hallway. I carefully step over the skeleton of a canine and direct Wynn to do the same. I don't know why the pets bother me so much. I barely even notice human remains anymore. The stupid owners either left him behind or didn't listen to the warnings when the megaquake hit the middle of the Atlantic. It all happened 60 years before I was born, but the event has been so dissected, practically everyone is an expert on it. Long story short, huge earthquake, tsunami warnings, complete ignorance of the brand new volcanic mountain range burst in a matter of days and continuing to grow even now. The ocean doesn't mind. It makes room where it can. Goodbye thousands of miles of coastland. Goodbye hundreds of major cities. Goodbye entire states. I stop in front of the last door and initiate a scan. Nothing. Still, I send Wynn in first. It is a tryout, after all. The room's secure, he says. The sculpture's here and looks to be in decent condition. Jug, self-portrait by Paul Gauguin. A three-quarter-foot stoneware mug from the late 19th century. Gauguin's more known for his paintings, but there's a market for the sculptures as well. Poe, we're ready for pickup in ten minutes. Roger, there's a McDonald's air station a few miles ahead I'll stop at and turn around. Want anything? Yeah, large fry. Rookie, want anything? Uh, no, thank you. It's good to keep Poe on his toes. Now he'll wonder if he should get fries and risk getting yelled at for the waste of time, or risk getting yelled at for not getting them. Either way... I get to yell at Poe. All right, rookie, let's see what you've got. The mug's encrusted and stuck to its resting place in 80-plus years of ocean crud, a result of the Atlantic homogenizing its new territory. When we go through official channels, the sculpture gets graded, and then it's all about how damaged it is. It's critical to get it back to the shop with as little disturbance as possible. The less crud on it when we get it back to the shop, the better the equipment can restore it. A deft hand is required. A surgeon's hand, preferably, hence the rookie win. Sculptures don't sue for malpractice. Win lives up to the hype. His movements are smooth and deliberate. He gets the mug out in about half the time it would have taken me and carefully wraps it up for transport. Impressive. Not bad, rookie. Follow me to the extraction point. We get there a few minutes later. It's only 50 feet from the mansion. Poe were in position. I'm five minutes out, transmitting sync for pickup now. Why? I got your damn fries. I'll be in there in four minutes and 37 seconds. Suddenly, I have to pass four minutes and 36 seconds alone with Wynn. I'm not going to tell him what a good job he's doing. I already got Poe. I don't need another inflated head on this crew. I pretend to fiddle with my equipment. That doesn't work for long, though. The silence is stretched. 
turning into a large pointing arrow at the lack of conversation. I need to say something soon. Wynne beats me to it. About last night. I don't want to have this conversation with Poe listening. Are the goods secure? Talk about work. Yeah, that's easy. Yes. You got the pickup routine activated? Yes. Okay, check your power and gravity levels. It's nothing like you've ever experienced. How different is it from the descent? It's not, except it's falling in the opposite direction. Kind of like going in an onychoic chamber. It's only when normal is missing that you experience how weird it is. The reverse gravity suits aren't supposed to exist. There are only a handful, and as far as I know, they're still a top-secret project for the Special Forces. When the opportunity presented itself to look at the plans for one from a desperate engineer with a gambling problem, I didn't hesitate. I had to go to Paranoid Pete to put out a second loan on the Seagull and empty the bank account to boot, but it was worth it. The engineer left out some key components to try to convince himself he wasn't doing anything wrong. Smart people always think criminals are idiots. But they weren't that hard for Poe to fill in. Okay, let's get to the surface for the pickup. When Poe's in position, the subroutine will automatically kick in, and whoosh, we will freefall toward the sky and onto the seagull. Wynn doesn't say anything. His face is probably green. I'd tell him not to vomit, but there's no better teacher than experience and having to clean it up afterward. It's still overcast when we reach the surface. The subroutine lights up a counter in the lower left of my helmet. Ten seconds to go. I take several deep breaths to prepare myself for the sudden reverse. Three seconds. Remember to flip so your feet are pointed toward the sky. One second. You feel it first in the stomach. A feeling that something has gone terribly wrong. You're already 200 feet in the air and climbing before the brain catches up and brings order to your system, reminds the body, this is what's supposed to happen. I've done this enough times that my brain kicks in around 100 feet, but something's different this time and it takes me another 100 feet to recognize it. It's Win. He's laughing. Rookie's gonna fit right in, huh? Poe asks. We sit in the driver's cabin of the Seagull, a ubiquitous air delivery vehicle we've modified for our purposes. We had tossed the back seats out to extend and close off the staging area and put in a trap door for the freefall entries and exits. The door between the two areas is enough to stop the wind from buffeting whoever is driving when the trap door opens, but not enough to stop the smell of salt from pervading the cabin. Wind's in the back, changing out of the gravity suit. Getting out of those things is tricky, like trying to take off a wet t-shirt three times too small. Yeah, he did all right. All right, the kid nailed it. Wrote a jump routine on the spot, got the goods out in record. What's your point, Poe? Nothing, just saying the kid did a good job. We've needed someone else for ages. I was impressed that he handled himself so well. Even the pickup, I mean... Aw, how sweet. Poe and his man crush. But I gotta say, I don't think Wynn plays that way. Too bad, though. You two would make a sweet couple. After a night with you, you never know. He might play for the other team now. You never did say how he was. Poe looks at me for details he isn't going to get. What's with you? Usually you're telling me how big the guy's... Poe, pay attention to not being followed in your upcoming visit with Charlie. The satisfaction of Poe's face going lax is immeasurable. He knows he shouldn't have stirred the pot. I'd bet a small fortune his testicles just defied gravity all on their own.
Wynn and I are in a hidden room we call the island in the center of a 6,000-square-foot loft in the middle of Atlanta. We're cleaning out and soaking the gravity suits while Poe is off meeting with Charlie, our longtime fence and surrogate crew member. She gives us fair rates, mostly, I think, because we're both women. Poe's scared of her. He made the mistake of hitting on her once in jest and didn't know what to do when she returned interest. She's bigger than he is. The loft is owned by our topside venture, Underwater Restorations. To the law-loving public, we restore and sell damaged art. It barely turns a profit, but the other side of our business does rather well. We even employ Ashley, a young, over-eager master of fine arts, to run the gallery in Charlotte. She's perfect for it, way too happy to have her own gallery to ask questions. The loft is on the top floor of an old manufacturing building on West Marriott Street. There are no windows and no advertising that we're here. All the restoration equipment and legitimate machinery is laid out around the center, with a small specialty elevator in the corner used for the delivery of pallets of restoration chemicals. Everything is designed to conceal the island in the center. It even has a secret entrance. There's a six-foot replica of the sculpture David outside. Guess what you have to pull to get in. I make Poe do it whenever we're together. Wynne is cleaning all the connectors with a toothbrush. It's laborious, like digging a hole is. It's never exactly clear when you're done. Wynne is growing restless. I can hear him shifting in his seat behind me. Listen, Isha, about last night. What about it? I continue to face away from him. Um, I'm not looking for anything serious right now. With the malpractice suit and the insurance company screwing me over and... And you think I'm looking for something serious? No, I mean, I don't know. I wasn't sure. Because I'm not, I turn around. I thought that would have been clear when I said I had a date tonight. A pretentious gallery owner hit on me a few days ago when I was researching the competition. His chin almost faded into his neck. But the more people you know and can keep your finger on in the art community, the better. Art snobs and criminals. Those are the two types of people I'm surrounded by. Then there's Wynne. I found him leaving Paranoid Pete's, the second most dangerous person I know. A loan shark named for his paranoia of not getting paid and taking premature, often violent, steps to make sure that people pay. Only the boss, the guy that runs and polices all the crime in Atlanta, is more brutal. Pete has terrible rates, unreasonable timelines, and praise on the desperate, and he was the only one willing to agree to the second loan on the seagull. At first, I was just interested in Wynne's shoulder-to-waist ratio and why such a lacy, law-abiding citizen was even at Pete's. After I learned his story, and he checked out, I worked out a deal with Pete to have him join my crew. Look, I say, this is an easy gig. We don't hurt anyone, we actually save art that would be lost to the world, and we get to freefall in both directions. He smiles at that. The crazy man really does like the reverse gravity freefall. He nods in response. A man with a moral dilemma. Strange. Poe and I are legacies born directly into a crew and without a citizenship. Off the official grid. Ready-made for crime. We accepted our lot as criminals before puberty. The only choice we had was deciding what type of criminals to be. The monitor on the side of the room lights up and shows Poe coming back through the elevator from his meeting with Charlie. Poe's impending arrival is enough to shut down the conversation. 
He comes through the door on the island and only has eyes for Wynne. How was... I start to ask. The meeting went swimmingly. Really? Uh-oh. Double talk. Whenever the ocean or water is referenced out of context, it's code. You couldn't have asked for a better day at the beach. Sun shining, fresh worms. Excellent. We've been in business long enough to have been through this before, but it's never pleasant. Now that that's taken care of, this place is a sty. Clean it up, please. The rookie and I are going out for a drink. Is that a fat joke? Yep, sweep it up, fatty. Whoops. Poe can be rather sensitive. I'll have to apologize later. The possibility that wins a mole has me rattled. Rookie, escort me to the nearest bar. Uh, I could stay here and help. Now, Wynne. Twenty-four hours later, Wynne and I arrive back at the storage loft to find Poe waiting. He quirks an eyebrow at me when he notices Wynne is wearing the same clothes as yesterday, but says nothing. He doesn't even mention my missed date, either. I don't know whether to be grateful or worried. It looks better in here, I say. It's clean. No bugs, he responds. So what happened? The sculpture's hot. Charlie wouldn't take it. She gave me this. He slides over a federal stolen art sheet. Look at the timestamp. A chill runs through me. It's hours after we took it. Hours. Poe continues. I went back and reprocessed the standard imagery the seagull collects and look. The squiddies weren't just to the east along the old coast. They were waiting for someone to take it. An aerial map of the underwater site shows up on the wall monitor. It's zoomed out enough to display 30 nautical miles around the mansion. Squiddies are everywhere, forming a ring around the mansion. I start laughing. This is fantastic. What? Poe asks, sharing a confused look with Wynne. Oh, you're still in trouble for missing this, Poe, but they set up a perimeter to catch the thieves. They have no idea about our freefall entry and exit. They probably think we enter the water outside the monitoring zone and sneak in some other way. Poe flushes red. I'd get on him more about the squiddies, but it's better to let him stew. Sure enough, little beads of sweat start to form on his temples. Poe's a softy wrapped in a large package. He'd never forgive himself if we got nabbed. Oh, wonderful, Poe says. What about the very hot, very expensive sculpture we gotta unload? We need the funds to prepare for the Jacksonville job. I know, I know. Interesting. Poe doesn't trust Wynn. The Jacksonville job is a pipe dream. We're not even close to the kind of resources we need to pull that off. I need time to think, to sort out our next move, and how to vet Wynn further. He's been with us for over a month now and passed all the screening tests. Wynne makes a suggestion only a newly defunct Lacey could think of. Well, what are the feds offering? Issa, Poe says. This is a bad idea. We've been over this, and we have, extensively. The next payment to Paranoid Pete is coming up, and we have nothing. At best, he'll repossess the seagull... At worst, he'll live up to his name, become paranoid, and act accordingly. Our only chance is to get some sort of proof of future funds from the feds that we can turn into liquid cash on the secondary market. Poe and I sit in the island, monitoring Wynne. Both of us are leaning over the table toward a speaker in the center. Wynne was the natural choice to send into the viper's nest of the federal building, claiming information leading to stolen art. 
Up until a few weeks ago, he was a pure Lacey, so he has all the proper documentation of an upstanding citizen, and nothing on his record except the bad luck of a malpractice suit. Also, having him interact with the feds will give us clues as to what side wins on. If Wynn is a mole, they may give us the cash more easily. In which case, we pay Pete and go deep. We put his citizenship back in and outfitted him with a one-way audio that piggybacked off it. Poe and I could listen to everything, and the feds would just see a citizenship acting normally, emitting information like it should. The speaker picks up a woman's voice. Dr. Runes, I'm Special Agent Lowry, the lead agent assigned to this case. Let's find a quiet place to talk. Wynne exchanges pleasantries and footsteps come through the speaker. Poe and I immediately start searching for information on Special Agent Lowry. How long have you been in Atlanta? She asks. I was born and raised here. I even went to medical school at Emory. You look like a native. You have a genteel air about you. Sorry about that malpractice business. Wynne stammers a response. It's in your file. Rotten luck, I must say. Usually the jury's predisposed toward tall, handsome men. That cow. I know it's a ploy to soften Wynne, but I start sorting through the search on Special Agent Lowry for a photo anyway. You can understand, then. Wynne says, why I'm interested in that reward. Right through here. A door opens and closes, and chairs are pulled out. Is this an interrogation room? Wynne asks. Poe and I both go still. Technically, yes. It's really just a quiet place to talk away from interruption. Do you object to having this conversation recorded? Wynne doesn't object, and she prattles off some identifying information for the recording. So, Dr. Runes, you have information that will lead to the recovery of the stolen sculpture Jug Self-Portrait by Paul Gauguin? Yes. There's an awkward pause before she asks, Can you please tell me what that information is? Right, sorry. Wynne clears his throat. I rent a storage locker. I often have to spend the night. The malpractice suit left me with very little. Anyway, last night there was some activity in the locker next to mine. They were talking about a sculpture that was hot and in need of restoration before they could move it. I put two and two together, searched your page for stolen art, and called. The best lies are the ones that toe the line of truth. Wynne does have a storage locker, but he's never spent the night there. Where's the storage locker? Wynne taps his fingers on the table before speaking. You'll have to forgive me, but I have reason to distrust authorities. Wynne's voice increases a notch in intensity. The people that are allegedly supposed to help you? The insurance company bailed on me on a technicality. The scraping of a chair being pushed back comes to the speaker. And the chief of surgery even said there was nothing I could have done. Instead... Dr. Runes, please, calm down. You came to us claiming information. I'm not sure how much Wynne is acting and how much is real frustration. That reward money can turn my life around. What guarantee do I have that you won't find some technicality not to pay? The reward isn't bad for a deteriorated 19th century piece of art. We could get a lot more if we cleaned it up and sold it through Charlie, but that isn't possible. The reward should be enough to cover our next payment. You don't, Agent Lowry answers. But there's no reason we wouldn't pay. It's in our best interest to reward informants. Bad press otherwise. What do you do the other nights when you're not in the storage locker? Motel. I work odd jobs for cash. When I can, I get a room to feel like a human again. 
Wynne scoots his chair, presumably closer to the table. Odd jobs? With your abilities? Why haven't you found something better? One, I can't practice medicine anymore, and two, liquidating all of my assets and selling all my stuff barely covered enough to keep me out of debtor's prison. Wynne is almost shouting. The IRS garnishes my wages so much to pay off the rent. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Just that they're pointless. I see. What places have you worked? Bars, restaurants, any place that needs an extra set of hands. I doubt they'd remember me. A pretty man like you? I find that hard to believe. But here is something I don't quite understand, Dr. Runes. According to our financial people, you couldn't have sold everything off and covered the part of the debt you paid. Can you explain that discrepancy? The sound of shuffling papers, and then of papers being slid across the table, echo through the speaker. Oh shit, there's no way they worked that up that fast. They were ready. Here's the thing, Dr. Runes. No loan officer would cover that amount for a doctor that could no longer practice. Well, sorry, I meant no legitimate loan officer. A loan shark, on the other hand. Wynne needs to get out of there right now. They were waiting for him. They knew all about him. He needs to leave now. Move, Wynne, move! Isa, Poe says. Wynne can't hear you. Stop shouting. I'm standing at the edge of the table with the speaker in my hands. I'm not sure when I grabbed it, or what I yelled. I don't like where this is going, Wynne says. Am I free to leave? No, you're not. Am I under arrest? Smart man, thank God we prepped him. No, we're holding you for questioning for suspicious activity. I want a lawyer. We'll get you one. In the meantime, tell me about Ruby. There it is. Poe and I lock eyes. It doesn't need to be said. Paranoid Pete got paranoid much sooner than we anticipated. Ruby 
is the cover name I use when dealing with him. Isa, Poe says, we gotta burn the island and go deep. I can't believe it. Pete broke the only rule we criminals have. We have to torch everything, cut all ties, disappear, lose everything we've built, and burn Wynn. If they release him, they'll tag him. He won't even know where we went. I got him into this mess. I agreed to send him in there. This'll probably destroy the last of Wynn's innocence, turning him into another jaded criminal. And I'm responsible. Isa. Poe's already shoving disks and hard drives into the arc furnace. Come on, we gotta go. My body responds mechanically and I start loading what I can onto the seagull. All I can think is, we'll have to change its name. But to what? The next 17 hours are a blur. The frantic flush of the island, the transformation of the seagull, disavowing underwater restorations, scrambling to determine the extent of the betrayal... Seventeen hours and seventeen minutes. That's what it felt like. I'm driving loops around the Airway 10 at 2.30 in the morning in the newly minted Pelican, trying to figure out a way out of this mess. Poe's in the next seat, snoring. I'm not sure if he realizes how screwed we are, or if it's a skill he's acquired being able to sleep anywhere at any time. I suspect it's a bit of both. I can't sleep. I know how screwed we are. Almost in concert with Poe's are wind snores coming through the Pelican speakers. The feds never found the audio bug. We've been able to monitor everything. Wynn hasn't said a word, not one to the feds the entire time they've had him. Even to the lawyer, he only said one sentence. I intend not to say anything. And I'm pretty sure that was meant for me. The only silver lining in this colossal stupidity is that I'm 95% certain Wynn isn't a mole. He knew several of our contacts, and none of them were being monitored by the feds when Poe and I visited them to call in last favors. Even so, the knowledge that Wynn likely isn't a mole isn't particularly comforting. The only two outcomes I can see for Wynn are either 30 years in prison or becoming a slave to Pete. If the feds don't arrest Wynn, Pete will get his hands on him. Wynn's medical skills are too valuable. He'll go back to patching up thugs for Pete's conscripted army. Pete will never let him go. The only outcome I can see that will turn out well for Wynn is if he is a mole. Of course, if that's true, then he deserves to be gutted like a fish. And around and around I go on the airway 10. Poe snorts and shakes awake. He wipes away some drool and sits up, looking groggy. So what's the plan? Wynn hasn't said anything to the feds yet. They'll either arrest him or release him in seven hours. I'm not sure how to play it. I meant about Pete. Poe stretches, cracking various appendages. He sinks back into the seat and looks at me expectantly. Oh, right. Why should I have to bail us out of this? Didn't I just prove my plans were epic failures? I don't know, Poe. What is the plan? You got a plan? No. Because I don't have a plan, so maybe you should pull your weight around here and come up with one for a change. Poe doesn't say anything in return. I know I'm being a bitch, but I don't care. I abandoned Wynn, burned everything I've built, cut myself off from the only world I know, and, unless we take care of Pete first, he'll definitely have us killed so no one will know what he did. And Poe just sits there, calmly expecting some grand plan to set it all straight. Poe says, 
Pete busted the only rule. We could call the boss. No, absolutely not. That's a stupid idea and you know it. Calling the boss from a position of weakness is a surefire way to end up working for him. Oh, he'll sort it all out, but he'll remind you of that every time he wants something. It took a year last time to get his claws out of us. I'd rather take my chances with Pete than end up working for him again. Any other bright ideas? Poe mumbles something. What was that? Speak up, Poe. I said you're the brains of the outfit. You always got a plan. Damn it, Poe, not this time. And why the hell are you so calm? Poe smiles. You always get like this before some really clever idea comes out. It's how you work. So go ahead and yell. It frees up your mind. I nearly punch him. Poe is nothing if not loyal, and I'm not entirely sure how I got to deserve that loyalty. Which gets me to thinking about loyalty and the situation with Pete. An idea starts to form. Out of spite, I toy with the idea of not telling Poe to discourage him from thinking he's got me figured out. But we have a small window before Pete finds out what happened. Pete's men only serve him, I say, because they're either indebted to him or because he provides steady pay. Right. Poe mulls this over. So we steal his stash and his men turn on him. I like it. Simple. Plays to our strengths, lets others do the dirty work. So what's the game? We don't have time for a game. All right, old-fashioned, straightforward thievery it is. Classic. Where's the stash? I don't know, Poe, up your ass. I'm still frustrated with him. Is that what that is? Poe leans over and farts repeatedly in rapid succession. He settles back into his seat, smiling, his eyes half-closed. Mmm, the stash is lumpy. Despite myself, I'm laughing. Ever since we were nine, Poe has been able to make me laugh. I vent the cabin. Fine, I say. Here's my plan. Pete keeps his records in a tan ledger that he loves to lord over people. After several years in business, he's filled up quite a few of them. We need a recent one he isn't using anymore. That'll tell us where his stash is, and since he isn't using it, he won't notice it's missing. Right. He keeps them in a waist-high safe in the corner of his office. What kind of safe? Safe-cracking is Poe's gig. I've never had the patience for it. Dunno, a green one? There were five audible clicks when he opened it during one of my visits. Poe rolls his eyes. Issa, that's useless. Yeah, you're going to have to come with me. How are we going to get in? Pete's office is on the top floor of a three-story building. Pete controls the area, which leaves coming in from above the only option. I smile at Poe. No, no way. Poe shifts away from me as far as he can get. I'm not wearing one of those stupid vomiting suits again. I laugh, then mime puke exploding inside of a helmet and down my face. Issa, no! Poe's not above whining to get his way, but before he starts, his face breaks into relief. Besides, all my tools are here, and since we don't know what kind of safe it is, I don't know what to bring. What? So you want me to bring you the whole damn safe? Poe looks thoughtful for a second and says, Yep, that's exactly what you should do. This is not my favorite part. I love the freefall descent and tolerate the unnatural ascent, but bouncing between the two for the purposes of hovering, not so much. 
It's not even hovering. It's jerking me up and down, mixing the contents of my stomach up like some Rube Goldberg blender. We designed the suits to work in the ocean. The extra force from buoyancy helps smooth out the motion. Buoyancy is negligible in the air. It makes for a bumpy ride. There wasn't time to see if we could modify the subroutine. Even worse, the reverse gravity modules work on a closed system, which means I'm in the full gravity suit, helmet included, jammed over my night vision goggles. My peripheral vision's cut off, and what I can see is distorted through a curved glass plate. Plus, everything I hear sounds distant. I'm going in, almost deaf, with tunnel vision. Maybe I should have shoved nose plugs up my nose to match the motif. I oscillate outside a window that's been filled in with brick to match the rest of the side of the three-story building. Pete's office is on the other side. I have no idea if he's in there. For this to work, Pete can't have any clues something is amiss, and that means setting the laser cutter on the narrowest setting. So narrow that I can't even fit a scope wire through to see if the office is occupied. I have to time the laser cutter with my mini ascents as I cut through the mortar. Thankfully, the brick in the window was added later, so all the edges around the window are straight. There's a slight dip in the cut along the left edge, where I realize this would have been a perfect task for Wynne's steady surgeon hands. I put the laser cutter in my pack and take out handles, which I attach to the center of the brick window. I push the brick forward into the office. It slides smoothly, but not easily. 200 pounds of brick isn't trivial to move. The moment of truth is when the brick is halfway into the office. I need to push the brick to get in, get into the office, and reverse the gravity enough not to slam the brick onto the floor. If Pete's in there, I'm a sitting duck. If I drop it without the additional weight, I'll hit the ceiling. The gravity subroutine will help with lowering the 200-pound block, but I still have to hold it. It's still 200 pounds. Holding a cannonball descending or ascending is still holding a cannonball. I check my gravity subroutine and get ready to push. I pause to see if I can detect any clue about what's on the other side. I can't. I push the block the rest of the way. Several things happen. My arms are seriously considering life without my body. It's dark, and I feel more than see that I'm descending too fast. I try to get my legs down toward the floor, but it's all I can do to keep a hold of the damn block of bricks. My legs end up parallel to the floor behind me, with the block of bricks leading the charge. Thunk. Even through my helmet, I can tell that was a hell of a lot louder than I intended. Books. It landed on books. They softened the blow, but there's no time to waste. I quickly search the room. No one's in the office. The night vision goggles paint the room green. The brick cutout rests squarely on several piles of books. It didn't even knock any over. The brick walls are bare, but several bookcases are set along the walls and full with either books or knickknacks, probably trophies of some kind. Directly across from the door is an oversized desk illuminated by light from under the door. It's a monstrous wooden thing. I wouldn't be surprised if Pete had it raised just so he could look down on people while doing business. I turn off the gravity subroutine and take off my helmet so I can hear properly. Hopefully, if I have to bolt... I'll have enough warning to get it back on and escape. The safe is waist-high and almost as wide and deep, and at least 500 pounds of the latest and greatest steel alloy. There's no way I'm moving this thing by hand, which is where Poe's idea comes in. 
I take Poe's modified extra gravity suit, which is the largest we have, out of my pack and start sliding it over the safe. Once most of it's stretched into position, I turn it on. Even though the suit isn't a closed system yet, it's enough to generate a weak gravity field, reducing the weight enough for me to get the rest of the suit around the bottom. I seal the gravity suit and activate the hover subroutine. It rises and bounces between my chin and chest. I'm silent for this job, so I signal Poe it's ready. Poe speaks through my earpiece. I'm one minute and forty seconds away. I signal back, acknowledged. Poe is up in the Pelican, driving a loop in the airways around the area. Each loop takes about four minutes, which means there's only a twenty-second window every four minutes when the safe can be delivered, or I can be picked up. I guide the safe toward the window. When Poe gives the signal, voices. Someone's approaching the door. One, maybe two. I can't tell. I scoop up my helmet. The safe is blocking the only way out. I position myself to chuck the safe at the door and start to squeeze my helmet on. The handle twists and the door shunts inward. It's locked. I freeze with my helmet halfway on and listen over my beating heart. Do you have a key? A man with a deep voice asks. No, another man answers. It's Pete's office. He don't give no one keys to his office. Oh, thank God for Pete's paranoia. That stupid bastard just bought me time. The first man says, Then we have to call Pete. I ain't calling Pete. You said you'd heard something. I did. Poe thunders in my earpiece. Forty seconds away. I know the men can't hear Poe, but his voice is jarring. Launch the package in 30. Sink in 3, 2, 1, sink. I activate a hack of the pickup routine on the safe and push it outside the window. When Poe's in position, the safe will fall into the sky. Fine, I'll call him, the first man says. But you're going to tell him what you heard. If you're calling him, why don't you tell him? I don't want to wake Pete up. The voices fade down the hallway the way they came. I look out the window. The safe's gone. Fifteen seconds later, Poe comes on the line again. Package delivered. Unwrapping it now. I type the situation out on the communicator. We probably have less than ten minutes, including getting that brick back in place. Poe's response? Understood. It's all business for him now. He's in his element with the safe. Safe cracking is about as intimate as I've ever seen Poe get. I've even heard him refer to it as caressing the tumbler. I'm tempted to go through Pete's stuff while I wait, wipe boogers on his coffee mug, run his pencils through my ass crack, that sort of junior high stuff that's stupid but oddly satisfying. But he can't know we were here, even though he's probably on his way right now. If Pete catches on, this whole thing is blown. Pete needs to find something, something that could explain the noise, justify him getting called, but stop him from looking further. There's a bookcase with adjustable shelves by the window, and the top shelf is even overloaded. I remove all the items and scatter them about like they fell. The bookcase is close enough to where I set the brick cutout down that it could justify kicking over the books when I leave to cover any debris. The laser cutter takes care of the front left side of the adjustable piece that holds the shelf. A slight cut is enough for me to break the rest of it with my hands, giving it a sheared, tried-to-hold-too-much-weight look. Perfect. It's been three and a half minutes since the safe left. Pete could be here any second. I curry Poe on his status and wait for a response. And wait. 
and wait. Four minutes, 45 seconds. I have to get the safe back in and restore the brick wall. I resist the urge to keep pinging Poe. He's probably in the middle of climaxing. Five minutes, 51 seconds. Poe speaks through my earpiece. Got it. Repackaging and ready to drop in two minutes, ten seconds. My impatience flares. Two minutes of dead time. Two minutes for simple repositioning. Two minutes of Pete drawing closer. Time hasn't been kind to me lately. The past eighteen or so hours have passed like minutes, and now the minutes pass like hours. Every creak of the building, every noise coming from the street through the window sounds like a gunshot. It's wearing on my nerves. And the damn musky smell of Pete's office isn't helping. I should have worn nose plugs. The smell is overpowering, almost like Pete's in the room. I can't decide if Pete uses a cologne that makes this room stink, or if this room makes Pete stink. Finally, Poe says, 20 seconds out. I force my helmet back on. Poe continues. Sink is in three, two, one, sink. I sink my gravity subroutine and go outside to the window to direct the safe back in. The safe is falling toward me. This is a precision drop like nothing we've done before. At least when I drop on the way down, I can adjust to some degree where I'll land. The safe doesn't have arms and legs to steer. But objects don't just fall straight down when pushed off a moving vehicle. They capture some of the momentum. It's all part of the calculation and fervent prayer. Fortunately, in a night sky that is clouded with moving objects, the safe is hard to distinguish against the background. Unfortunately, it looks like it's going to hit the edge of the roof. Clang. The safe clips it and spins on the way down. I'm able to corral it, but the noise is on the level of throwing a metal trash can on the ground. Well, if they didn't hear the first noise, they certainly heard that. I get the safe back into the room, set it in place, and remove the gravity suit. I look the safe over. No scuff marks that I can see. It must have hit the bottom or the back, which is fine with me. Poe says, Isa, a vehicle just descended and pulled in front. 30, 45 seconds at best before Pete gets here. I'm already moving. All I need to do is move that 200-pound block of bricks that nearly ripped my arms off once before. I dart into my pack and get the handles, and stop when I brush up against the extra gravity suit. It worked on the safe. I put the modified gravity suit back on the bricks first, then attach the handles. Shadows start jumping underneath the crack of the door. They're coming. I activate the gravity subroutine. 200 plus pounds of brick magically turns manageable. I kick over the books. I'm in the air with my ass outside the window, about to fit the bricks back in place when the shadows stop moving again. They're outside the door. I might make it. They might not notice the wall right away. I line up the edges. The left edge won't fit. The brick wall is upside down. I freeze. It's over. I get ready to use the blocks as a weapon. I strain and can barely hear someone's soft, garbled voice. They keep talking. They're just standing there. I seize the opportunity and flip the block around. Sweat drips from the back of my neck from the effort. They still haven't opened the door. I fit the block into place and pull it flush. I made it. I take the handles off and remove the modified gravity suit. 
My adrenaline's so high, I think I can hear them through the brick. I'm left with an uneasy feeling. What did I forget? The distant voices are getting louder. They're not in the office. They're on the roof, heading straight toward me. I use the building to leapfrog myself toward the back of the building. Silence is secondary to speed. I just turn the corner when my heart stops. A muffled yell, followed by a back and forth I can't distinguish. My eyes are glued to the roof line. One one thousand. Two one thousand. Three one thousand. No movement. The muffled talking continues. They must have found where the safe hit the roof. With any luck, they'll assume it was some type of throwaway from the sky. My body can't take much more adrenaline. I use the gravity suit to drop to the ground and make a run for it. I need to find some place to hole up in and have Poe come pick me up. I think I might finally be able to sleep after this. Three hours later, I'm back on the pelican getting cleaned up. What I really need is a decent shower, but I'm making do with a washcloth and a fresh change of clothes. After escaping from Pete's place, Poe and I decided he couldn't just drop down and get me after all. Personal air vehicles aren't very common descending down into Pete's slum. The pelican would be noticed, and reported. I ended up having to wait for public transportation to start back up to take me to a better part of town for pickup. I passed three of the dullest hours known to man, sitting in an all-night diner in my own filth, keeping an eye on the door. I hadn't planned on taking off my gravity suit, so I sat in the diner in a tank top and black yoga pants, plastered in sweat. Fortunately, with my odor, I fit right in at the place. Those three hours weren't completely wasted, though. Poe's been deciphering the ledger. I finish cleaning up and walk into the cabin. Poe looks... solemn. Resigned. Well? I ask. Pete stacks. I slump into the chair next to him. Stacking is when a mark splits his stash among multiple locations. How many? Definitely four, possibly five. There's something else, Isa. Pete keeps his wealth in the physical. Jewels, precious metals, and the like. Even if we could hit all the stacks, we can't physically move everything by ourselves. The pelican's too small. We can't expose ourselves to get help. We don't have to steal it, just destroy it or stop him from getting access. Isa, Pete's loaded. We could hit all but one and he'd survive. Where's Poe's optimism now, his we-can-do-anything attitude? Suddenly it gets hard and he wants to roll over? Isa, you gotta call him. Stop using my name, Poe. It's annoying, Poe. I'm not a child, Poe. Poe taps the tan ledger. Pete's embezzling. Interesting. The boss gets a cut of all the crime that goes down in the city. If Pete's embezzling, and we have proof, then we're not coming to him in a position of weakness. We're whistleblowers doing the boss a favor. Still look down on like scum, but maybe after everything is cleared up, we could leak the true story. But God, I hate calling the boss. I'll be perceived as a scared little girl. Daddy, there's a big man after me. Daddy, I need you to protect me. Daddy, I'm too weak to help myself. It's enough to make me sick. Pete deserves it, though. You gotta call him, Poe repeats. Fine. My brain's shot. I can't think of anything else that might work. I'll make the call later, at a more civilized hour. 
I lean into the reclined seat. I haven't slept in almost 26 hours. My nerves are fried. My brain's dead. My body's exhausted. Falling asleep isn't the problem. Staying asleep is. The 20-minute chunks are the high performers. The rest average between 10 and 15 minutes. Every time I slide into sleep, Wynne is there to meet me. His clean-shaven face gains a gray, scraggly beard. His well-fitting clothes morph into a disheveled prison uniform. The worst are the images of his hands. His soft, surgeon's hands. Steady and strong, turning into crackled, nicotine-stained skeletons bound by handcuffs. After about an hour and a half of this, I give up. When will haunt me, waking or sleeping? At least while awake, I can block some of it out. It's 8 a.m. Wynn is due to be released in an hour and a half. If the feds do release him. They're probably working overtime to pin the theft on him. Even if he is released, Pete will pick him up at the first opportunity to work off his debt. Wynn doesn't realize that he's already too deep in our world. The criminal underworld leaves a trace on a person. People who have fallen into crime hold themselves in a certain way. They know where to look. Linger a second too long on a cop. In Wynn, this is an oxymoron. If I saw him for the first time, my thoughts would be that he's trusting. A rube. But from the trace. In trouble. Panicked. In other words, easy prey. An ideal mark. A perfect patsy. Wynn will spend the rest of his life wasting away in a cell or in the hands of someone like Pete, being used and manipulated. I can't leave Wynn to this fate. Poe? I'm going back for him. I stand in a storage closet full of restoration chemicals in the loft where the island used to be, owned and run by Ashley's Restorations. It wasn't even a half hour after we had turned control over to the twit that she had changed the name. The feds released Wynn an hour ago. I had picked up a disposable communicator and sent a one-word message to him. Island then tossed it in the trash. The feds will have hacked his communicator at a minimum and are going to be watching him, but we need to get Wynn now, before Pete gets his hands on him. I've been waiting for twenty minutes, drifting in and out of alertness. Even after I had called the boss, I still couldn't find rest, stuck in the same track of questions. Will he come? How angry will he be? What will I say? Will he believe me? And more importantly... Will he have a visual cortex bug? That last question bothers me the most. There's little I can do if he does, other than cold cock him and run. We don't have the equipment to deal with it anymore, and even if we could take him somewhere to deal with it, the feds would know where, and who, as well as get an image of me. I hate waiting. Poe speaks through my earpiece. He's here, and he's got a tail. Poe's high in the sky in the pelican, running command. I ready my equipment and step flush to the side of the door. Several minutes later, Wynn enters, turns on the light, and walks past me. I put the end of a short metal tube I found in the closet between his shoulder blades. Shh. He freezes. I start scanning with my other hand. Sure enough, the scan picks up a tracking and audio bug almost immediately on his citizenship. Well, good tricks are good tricks for all sides. That's one bug. I keep scanning. Poe says, More plainclothes cops are showing up. Not a good sign. 
Wind starts to tense, but he doesn't know it's me. He's going to do something stupid. I lean forward and kiss the back of his neck, then nibble on his ear for good measure. He relaxes, and I drop the metal tube. I initiate the visual cortex scan. The scan itself takes only a few seconds, but then the software needs time to chug through the data before giving the results. Poe explained why it takes so long to me once. Something about how the brain communicates with tiny electrical signals that can mask the signature of the bug. 70% done. I take a deep breath. If this comes up negative, then all I have to do is remove his citizenship and we can get out of here. Poe interrupts the silence. They're forming a perimeter around the building. I also think they got an unmarked air vehicle up here. Great. I was hoping they'd be content to watch. The earlier text probably got them hot to trot. 85% done. Poe says, They're entering the building. You gotta get out of there. Shit. I need to get the audio chip out before we can bolt, but the scan isn't done. If the feds get my image, at best my ability to work will evaporate. At worst, I'll rot in a 10 by 10 concrete jail cell for 23 hours a day for the rest of my life. I'd be a maximum security risk. An accomplished thief con woman, and escape artist. There probably wouldn't even be a window. For 23 hours a day, for the next 60 years, I'd just sit there. I'd be insane in less than a year. 94% done. Poe says, They've got dogs. I step around front to face Wynn and put my fingers to my lips to keep him quiet. I had made my choice when I decided to come here. Thankfully, he listens. He still trusts me. I expect to see anger. Instead, I see fear, desperate need, that I'm his last hope. Why does he still trust me after I nearly hung him out to dry? He's like a lost puppy that deserves better. I put the extraction device over his left hand and remove the citizenship. Once the device indicates it's found the chip and got a lock on it, I rip the device off, bringing blood and the chip with it. There isn't time to be gentle. 98% done. I set the chip in the center of the floor. I motion to Wynn to add his communicator next to the chip. I open the door to the loft and wait. Attenuated dog barks travel up and out the stairwell from the first floor. Wynn looks at me in alarm. His round blue eyes contrast against the straight line of his jaw. I wink back. A hundred percent. No cortex bug. I grab Wynn's shirt and run for the corner of the loft with the small specialty elevator and climb in. The shaft is lined with regularly spaced bars to make descent easy. I added them when we got the loft as a quick escape route. I still can't believe we had to burn this place. It was perfect. The cops are working their way up the building. As we descend, we can hear cops talking to one another, giving orders. They still haven't searched the elevator. That'll probably change when the dogs get to the loft. We reach the basement and I check. No cops. We climb out, remove a sewer grate, and drop down into the sewer, replacing the grate behind us. In a couple of blocks, we'll get out, and Poe will pick us up. We jog to the first turn, then slow to a brisk walk. You can talk now, I say. What happened? Pete rolled on us. He figured we wouldn't find out. It was a hedge. Either he'd get paid reward money if they arrested us, or we'd be successful and we'd pay him. Either way, he gets paid. He never thought it would be so stupid as to try what we did. They think I'm a criminal. They wanted to arrest me. You are a criminal. What did you expect? But I don't say these thoughts out loud. I've lived this moment. I know those words won't be helpful. 
It's the moment when you realize that's it. There's no going back. Mine was when I was seven. I botched picking a tourist's pocket and had to run for my life. I want out. His voice is small. There is no out. The only way out is to purchase it with more money than we've ever had, which means pulling more jobs. I don't have the heart to tell him, so I say, Okay. He chews on his lip. So, what now? First, we have to deal with Pete. He'll know soon, if not already, that we know he ratted. He'll move against us. Wind pales. How'd Pete even know I was with you? All I ever told him was that I had another source of income. I bartered for your debt. Pete didn't let you go that easily. He had his very own personal doctor to patch up his thugs. Your services were more valuable than coin. The only way I could convince him was to add your debt to mine. But I was still paying him. I used the money you paid me with. You took on double my debt? Yeah. He pauses, then says, Thank you. I can't remember the last time someone has sincerely thanked me for anything. Ashley doesn't count. She has no idea what she agreed to. Uh, you're welcome. He would never have let me go, would he? Even after I worked it all off. Not likely. So how do we deal with Pete? We settle the score. Poe closes the tan ledger when Wynn and I enter the cockpit of the Pelican. Welcome back, rookie. Poe smiles in greeting. The smile is genuine, but distant. Not saying anything to the feds for 24 hours does wonders for trust, but we're not completely there yet. Wynn nods his greeting and sits down. I stand behind him. Any progress? I ask Poe. Time to put on a show for Wynn. Hopefully, this will get us back to 100% trust. Five, as far as I can tell. Two we can easily hit. His restaurant, the South Grill, and a small local bank. That may be enough with a fire run. Yeah, I say, but with a fire run, the mark is clued in. But it works, or we get lucky and he tries to move it, bringing it out into the open. Poe hands me the ledger, which I slip into my bag. Guys, Wynne says, what are you talking about? Hook, line, and sinker. Wynne really would have made a good patsy. I answer. Pete divides his wealth among multiple locations. It protects him against unforeseen loss, like theft. If he loses one stash, it's only a percentage of the total. We know of two locations, but not the rest. A fire run is when you clue the mark in by going after the pieces you know about in a very set fashion, say, every three days. In this case, the restaurant and the bank. After those are gone, the mark will assume we know the rest and will either check on them or have them moved. Either way, we're watching and we'll learn the location of the remaining pieces. And that'll get him off our backs? Wynn asks. His men will turn on him, I say. Half only work for him because they're indebted, and the other half because he pays regularly. Take away his capital, his ability to pay, and we cut him off from his men. I sit down. We'll hit the restaurant first. I hope this is the last time I have to lie to win. The following afternoon, I sit in Pete's office, waiting for the pompous ass to stop reading his Zen and the Art of Leadership book. I can't help but think of Wynne, sitting in the South Grill restaurant at this very moment, waiting for a cue that will never come. 
Pete thinks it's a power play to make people wait. I should have sent Poe and loaded him up with beans. I start laughing at the thought. That gets Pete's attention. Something funny? Just something Poe does. Normally I draw this out, save the moment, but Wynn's waiting. We couldn't unload the sculpture. Someone tipped off the feds. That's not really my problem now, is it? It is, since you're the one that tipped them off. Pete leans back and subtly moves his hands along the chair's arm. To an untrained eye, it would look like he was getting comfortable. To the trained eye, he had just called for help. That's quite an accusation. Can you prove it? Nope. Very hard to go to the feds and ask who tipped them off. One might be able to trace the money, but you didn't get paid, did you, Petey? The muscles twitch on one side of his face. Petey. I'll have to remember that. Two of his thugs come to stand behind the desk at either side of him. So you come in here with accusations you can't prove and no money. Jerome, Boots, hold on, I do have something of interest. I pull out the tan ledger and hand it to him. I've been schooled for over 20 years in cons, games, swindles, flimflams, you name it. Composure is the single greatest factor that affects the outcome of any of them. But I can't help but smile at his shaking hands. He compares the ledger I handed him to the current one on his desk, then glances over at the safe. How? Pete starts, then collects himself. I just checked hours ago. You haven't stolen anything. Nope, not a thing. Why go through all that effort when the boss offers a 10% finder's fee on assets people hide from him? It's the knockout punch. He blanches and drops the ledger. He skips over the first stage of grief and goes immediately to anger. Jerome, Boots, kill her. Make her suffer. I don't care what you do. Jerome and Boots shift their stance to box Pete in. Looks like Jerome and Boots have a new employer, I say. When the boss learned of the situation, the first thing he did was forgive debts and offer three times what Pete paid to control his men. Much easier to have allies than a war. The elation of victory is short-lived. Pete starts to tremble. Soon I start to see that same need in Pete's eyes that I saw in Wynn's. There's a reason I went into thievery and not other criminal enterprises. The look on Pete's face is it. I can't stand it. It robs the triumph right out of the moment. I wouldn't have the heart to follow through. That's why I rob underwater graves. It doesn't hurt anyone. I get up and pause halfway to the door. Pete's whimper of please will haunt me for years. How'd it go with Pete? Poe asks. He crumbled much faster than I thought. I'm back on the Pelican, heading toward the South Grill. Silence settles over the cockpit. Poe has no stomach for that stuff either. After several minutes of fighting traffic on the Air 20, he says, You know, with the 10% finder's fee, we could actually pay for one of us to go legit. Pete was one rich son of a bitch. I know. We both know we're not talking about ourselves, and there's nothing left to say. The rest of the ride is in a comfortable silence. The South Grill is a dive, a total hole, plain wooden booths, laminate tabletops. There are even grease stains running all along the top of the walls. Wynne is sitting in the only occupied booth, eating a stack of pancakes. I slide in next to him, and Poe plops down on the other side of the table. He doesn't say anything at first, but sips his coffee. 
There never were conch shells on the beach, were there? Damn, the man learns quick. No, there weren't. He nods. What's the point of gathering them, then? Right to the heart of the matter. Pete's been dealt with, definitively. You were the one to suggest going to the feds. We needed to make sure you were clean. He starts to object, but I interrupt him. There was a chance Pete was playing you, even without your knowledge. We had to make sure. Are you sure now? Yeah, I say. And we are. The restaurant's been monitored since about eight hours after we learned of Pete's betrayal. There's been no out-of-the-ordinary activity telling us Pete had been tipped off. The waitress comes over and I order a bowl of oatmeal with no intention of eating it, and a glass of water. Poe loads up on an omelet. How'd you deal with Pete? Wynne asks. We stole his ledger, I say, to find out where he hid his cash. <clears throat> Poe says. Oh, all right. Poe, in an astounding display of skill, cracked the safe in amazingly stupefying, mystifying speed, without which we would surely have failed and been roasted alive. Satisfied? Poe bows his head. Anyway, turns out Pete's been lying to the boss for years about what he made. It was easier to notify the boss and let him do the dirty work. He'll give us a 10% cut of what he recovers. I didn't realize you knew the boss. He's her father, Poe says. He's calm about it. Matter of fact about dropping one of my deepest secrets. I've sought for so long to distance myself from him. Poe remains silent and eyes me, inviting me to challenge him. I decline. Eventually, Poe caves to the intervening silence and says, Come on, Isa, if he's going to be a fully vested member, he's got to know. Fully vested member? Wynne asks. The rookie's graduating. Poe grins and pretends to wipe away a tear. I'm so proud. You have two options, I say. One, you stay on and help us rebuild. We could use the help. Is that the only reason you want me to stay on? Wynne asks. His full, honest face regards me over his pancakes. I divert my eyes to stay focused. Two, you go legit. Our take from the finder's fee is enough to cover the cost. You'll have to move overseas, but it's a chance at a normal life. So there it is. A way out. They don't come often. Never, actually. This is the first time we've had the capital to try and do it. What about you guys? What about us? I ask. We are what we are. It's a little hot here for us right now, so we're setting up shop in a new city. It's stressful, starting all over again. We fall into silence as the waitress brings our food. Poe dives right into his omelet while I ignore the gray stuff in front of me that's supposed to pass for oatmeal. The clinking of Poe's fork is the only sound at the table for several minutes, punctuated occasionally as Wynne pokes at his pancakes. Finally, the silence is too much, and I say, Look, you don't have to decide now. I never see Wynne move. One second he's next to me pushing food around on his plate, and the next we're locked in a full-on kiss. He breaks away and says, I'm in. You're a real piece of work, Ida Schmidt. Wait till you meet Dad, Poe says. I'd tell Poe to shut up, but I can't. I'm not done with Wynne. The maple syrup on his lips is delicious. <laughs> There you go, don't forget, copyright is Jeffrey's, Jeffrey, 
Eight Ballard, sir, thank you very much. A grand story. And good luck with the book coming out in October. Like I said, there's a link on the Jeffrey's site there. Do pop over and say hello. And Setsu, what can I say? Thank you so much for coming on, you know, and, and lending your talents to Starship Sofa. Thank you so much indeed. So that is today's show. I hope you liked it. You know, it, it's been rather, rather fun. And like I say, a big thank you to Brooke as well, who's, you know, the tricky ethics of living longer. Do you know, you kids are getting very frustrated with you. <laughs> Until next time, just like to say, good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.